My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. So, hey, uh, welcome back to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I am uh, I'm thrilled to have Andy Mansell on with me today. Andy is a, a well-known veteran of the, uh, the aircraft leasing industry, commercial aviation leasing industry. Uh, he's a partner in Split Rock Aviation. But for the last 20 years, he's been both with uh, Bullion Aviation and Aviation Capital Group. And uh, glad to have you on, Andy. What's happening at Split Rock? Well, thank you, Craig. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be on. Um, busy days, you know, the level of market disruption we, we have at the moment, I think, make for very busy times for, for folks like us. You know, we're, we're active on all sides of the, or all parts of the industry. We try not to um, put ourselves in any corner uh, because we, we seek to work with people we like on projects we like, which almost implies a level of fairness. Uh, so we, we have worked with lessors, manufacturers, airlines, and um, what's taken up most of our time now is more on the money side, on the investor side. There's a lot of money on the, on the sidelines that's looking for a way to deploy in the, uh, in the industry. What's, uh, what's, keeping you, what's keeping you the busiest? I mean, uh, a lot of money, are, so yeah, a lot of disruption, a lot of airplanes yes. parked, values are coming down, airlines are, you know, in Capitol Hill asking for money right now. And um, I got to think you've got some people who are scared to death and the other people are waiting on the sidelines with a pile of cash going, let me in coach. Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, when you, when you look on the, the money side, the money sitting on the sidelines, um, wanting to deploy versus having a coherent strategy to deploy, I think are, are two different things. You know, the, the easiest uh, question for a, a board or a credit committee um, to ask someone who wants to spend a, you know, a chunk of money is how do you know now is a better time than next month or the next six months? And if you don't have a good answer for that, I think saying no thanks is a lot easier than saying yes, please, you know, on the, on the investor side. I think in the U.S. in particular, I think the, the, um, the majors and the large airlines have done a, a very good job of signaling what's going to happen if they, if they don't get, you know, mm -hmm. uh, additional aid. On the one hand, you can argue that if you don't do additional aid, what was the point of the first aid? Um, if all it does is defer the inevitable. Right. The thought that crosses my mind on that, though, especially in the U.S., is that it's not always as easy as uh, selectively targeting a group of businesses, in this case, airlines. Uh, there's a huge uh, support base that goes with airlines, from airports to all of the, the folks that operate in the airports to the supply chain. Um, and do they um, protest and, and you know, fight the fact that the aid is too specific if it only goes to the airlines? You've got a whole industry. I mean, so it, you bring up a good point. You know, they, they, you know, the CARES money, PPP, whatever they call it, kept these guys afloat through the summer. If you don't continue it, you know, I wrote a blog yesterday. It's, it's like burning the house down. You know, you can allow the house to burn down in 15 minutes, but if you want to rebuild it, it takes, you know, a couple of years. 
Right, and this there there is, and, and I'm a unfortunately for me, I, I fall in this camp. I think that the bad news is actually in front of us, not behind us. Uh, shuttering an airline is very expensive. Recommencing operations is more expensive. Yep. Shuttering the airline almost entirely again is going to be more more expensive again. And and the barometer for this is one of our blue chips being Southwest. I was really, um, I was very keen to, to see what their, their numbers were going to be like when they did come out. And when you're flying 75% of your capacity year on year at a 43% load factor, and you represent the part of the business that's supposed to recover the fastest, being the leisure travel, um, that to me really shows you the depth of the, of the challenge here. You know, Southwest is, uh, was out within the last week saying that it wouldn't surprise them if it took a decade for the business part of their travel to come back. And I think if you're a, if you are a Southwest, the simpler your business model, the better off you'll, you'll be in the recovery. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. in the States, Southwest will be leading the way, the Alaskas, the JetBlues, you know, not, not far behind them. But the problem for the other airlines, the entrenched legacy carriers, is there's a reason why they focus on business travel. And that's because there's not a lot of money in the the leisure segment. So if you are one of the majors and you want the the leisure segment to carry you out of this, that to me looks like a a long, long road ahead if that's the case. Does, uh, yeah, so let's talk about something different. You know, you've got Frontier, you've got Spirit. Um, a lot of the LCCs, ULCCs, does everybody literally have to go? I mean, is the industry moving forward? Does everybody have to go to an LCC model? I mean, you know, American and Delta got to focus, United got to focus on the business traveler because their costs are high. You know, these well, other they, guys can sell seats for 50 bucks a pop. What, what a great question. Because again, you go to the, the spirits, the, the frontiers of the, of the world, simplify business models. Um, again, they'll be in the, in the group of carriers that, re- that recovers first. Not hard to imagine those guys using this as a growth opportunity, you know, to, to grab more market share. And the very thing that makes the, the, the major strong is going to be their Achilles heel this time around, right? And that is you primarily travel on the majors uh, for access to their international networks or, right. you're, or you're doing business class travel and you just want access to the, to the lounges, you know, the, the ease of, of travel. That stuff's at the back of the line. And we've seen the US majors try to do low cost before and it didn't, didn't work, right? It was more maybe low price, but it wasn't low cost. Uh, and it's not easy introducing low cost into their business model, but they've, frankly, they, they swung and missed at this, you know, trying it previously. Yeah, I remember. Well, United, you know, twenty years ago, they tried TED, and, right? Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know, Delta tried it, and everybody, you know, then they tried to go the opposite way when they were running. Uh, American was running all first class Fokers from uh, L.A. to Dallas. Right. Um, yeah, a lot of business plans, but then Bill Frankie comes along, you know, multiple times with Spirit, and then now Frontier, and um, you know, he's like, "Hey, look, I got the model down, and and it works." So, yeah, does it, it does this change the paradigm completely? It, it has to impact it significantly, right? The only thing I think going for the for the legacy guys is that the the low cost and ultra low cost guys are still in cash preservation mode, you know, protecting liquidity like everyone is. So they'll have to be somewhat circumspect about how they try and grab market share. And as Southwest has, has proved, you know. Flying at forty-three percent load factor on seventy-five percent of capacity year on year, 
I mean, it's it's tough as you try and, and generate that market again. So that's probably the the only thing going for the for the big guys, right? Is that these guys with the rather mean and, and lean business models don't have unlimited money to throw at the at the market. No doubt. I mean, they're running on thin margins too. So, um, but so you know, you've got a, a you know, incredible aircraft trading background. So let's talk about yeah. You know, let's let's shift from what the airlines do. We all know yeah. You know, look, it's yeah. You know, we all know it's it's. I'm very happy I'm not an airline CEO right now. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's it's um, a great time to be in the peanut gallery for sure. Exactly. You know, and, and I'm rooting for I'm rooting for all these guys, you know, you know Kelly and Bastion and uh, and Parker and everybody else. I'm rooting for them all. And I, you know, but I, I gotta think the amount of stress that they have on them is is absolutely overwhelming. Let's talk about your know, aircraft values. Let's talk about, you know, you've got you know, you know wide bodies parked, no international travel. Um, will they ever come back? You've got, you know, the, 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 the heavy lifting will be on the 737, A320 fleet. How's that going to affect investor you know, balance sheets, your, you know, your, your lessor balance sheets? What's, what's happening in that arena? Well, uh, uh, a lot is happening in, in that arena. And it's, it's an interesting one. We can start with what I'd call the low hanging fruit. The, the biggest issue we've got from the aircraft uh, appraising community is you need willing buyer, willing seller in order to correctly appraise uh, an aircraft. And we might have willing sellers, but I'm not so sure we have a lot on the on the willing buyer front. The other thing that I think people need to understand is that the cracks were there pre-COVID. All COVID has done is just like burst the, the dam wide open and, and greatly accelerated what would have happened over a, a, a number of years otherwise. And the easiest place to start is white bodies. The most popular and uh, wide body for investors in the world has been the 777-300ER. The issue with that is that as the manufacturers pumped more and more planes in the, into the market, the old adage that these flag carriers will never uh, push the plane out of the fleet uh, wasn't holding true. And with the 777, one thing that is very true is that it's too much plane for the secondary market. There is a market niche to deploy secondhand 777s into, but there isn't a, there's not an operator base in the secondary market, huge base in the primary market. Now with the advent of COVID, the 787-8, the 787-9 look like the right size planes. The 777 looks like a lot of plane for this market. And when flag carriers can't deploy it, um, who's your guy? So those planes are gonna struggle. The A330 is available in abundance. You know, there's hundreds of A330s available. That is such a supply-demand imbalance. It's it's hard to imagine a scenario where those uh, values ever recover. On the A350 front, there were whitetails, brand new aircraft, uh, pre-COVID, almost 20 of them, and that was pre-COVID. So, you know, the 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 OEMs have privately acknowledged for for quite a while pre-COVID that they knew they had. A, a, an issue in the wide body market. Mm-hmm. Then you move to the narrow body market, a huge base of A320s and 737s. And then of course you have the, the Neo and the, and the Max. Those values will have to be impacted in the narrow term. It's unknown how many aircraft will be pushed out on account of, of age. But if uh, you know Avalon came out at, in the earlier days of COVID and forecast there were 4,000 surplus aircraft. Wow. Of which approximately 1,000 have been retired. 
when you have a supply demand imbalance of 3,000 planes, uh, that's going to take a while to reabsorb those aircraft, mm -hmm. especially when you uh, put that over the, the backdrop of the IATA forecast is that traffic isn't coming back in the real way until right. 2023 or 2024. So you use that as the context. Uh, is it easy to see values impacted 20, 30 percent? Sure. Yeah, yeah, the business jet market. Yeah, I remember you know going back to the you know financial crisis in the business jet market. I was talking to a friend of mine, a great broker. I said, "What's a G five fifty worth?" You know, right now. He goes, "I don't know." He goes, "He goes." I go, "He goes, I don't know what the value is." He goes, "It's it's only what someone's willing to pay for it." And absolutely, if I have a willing if I have a willing buyer coming to the table with a check in my hand in his hand, you know, we'll yeah, we'll we'll, we'll entertain the offering. You saw. You know, 30, 40 percent, you know, you, you saw people with with wide body or, you know, with heavy metal private you know, business jets taking 15, 20 million dollar haircuts on airplanes with less than a thousand hours, a thousand hours on them. Right. Um, and and that, yeah, that's more palatable on the on the private jet side. You know, the issue we have and why you won't see or I haven't seen uh, portfolios of aircraft, you know, the 737-8320 variety hitting the market is we're in hurry up and wait mode from the from the lessor side. Uh, the lessors need to take impairments and what will drive impairments is selling aircraft at a loss. So one thing they're going to try not to do is sell aircraft at a loss to, to push this out uh, and deploy a, a, a strategy that starts with, I hope. And that, you know, the minute they start taking losses on, on aircraft, like the A320 or 737, that's going to be significant. It's coming on the on the 777 and the A330. Mm -hmm. And when you're when you're a lesson, there's so many pain points at the moment. You you know you have your uh, you know repossessions, your aircraft on ground, your delinquencies. You have pressure on yield because of of what replacement lease rental looks like. Then you have residual value pressure. You have pressure on investment grade ratings, <clears throat> and then you have an inability to trade aircraft. Um, at the levels you want to. And, and here's a, a simple question that's hard to answer. If I, as my challenge to you, said, um, if you want to value a lease rental stream for an aircraft that's going to be traded, what airline in the world can you guarantee will not be coming back to the owner of that aircraft mm -hmm. asking for more concessions? And I, can't, I don't think there's any airline that's on that list. Right. No, no doubt. So... So you know, so what are the so where do the opportunities lie? I mean, ultimately, right now we got a frozen market. A um, little bit of hurry up, you know, like you said, hurry up and wait. Um, I look at you know eight hundred maxes that are parked, and I wonder how many of those sell for fifty cents on the dollar under new liveries. Um, yeah, you could, you know. So the bad news is out. Everybody really understands. It's like okay, this is a big a big mess. It's going to take some time to sort itself out where do the opportunities lie where do you where do you what do you tell your clients hey, who are looking for opportunities and yeah how do you tell them to you know deploy a strategy well and it's a, it's a great question this to me is where the the focus initially goes on if you like developing a playbook so that you've got the plays uh, developed to the extent that you can recognize what opportunity looks like 
And that means pricing in bad news on, on aircraft. So you have an expectation that you may be parking this plane for 12 months or 18 months, and that is being priced in. When it does deploy, you have an expectation that the rent is not 350000 a month, it's two fifty a month or something like that. And, and developing the, the plays. And I think the, the, the opportunity... Um, probably isn't within the next few months, but say anything, let's see how bad winter is on the, you know, for the, for the market. Um, what shakes out? I think the biggest threat to the lessors is their equity being impatient, not for the legacy lessors, but think of that private equity money that's flown into the industry. Those guys aren't known for their patience. And when they're expecting return A, and then they find out they're getting return B, but mm-hmm. there's no statute of limitation on impairments and there could be another round coming, and whether they choose to stick or not stick um, is, is the question. When airlines do recover, if you can make it through this market, um, just by the nature of what this challenge is, um, airlines will have to take very brutal decisions, which means that when the market does come back, they'll probably be scrambling for planes again. So yeah. you can expect that there, there could be, um, I call it either, either sort of um, just bubbles of real opportunity on the acquisition side mm-hmm. and, and areas of opportunity on the on the supply side when airlines come back. And the, the advantage of newer money in this space is that airlines and lessors share an identical goal. And that goal is to survive and preserve liquidity. But while their goal is identical, it's not overlapping. And that makes them really hard to be partners together. Like you're trying to place planes at the same airlines that you're fighting with in terms of resisting restructurings and the, and the such like. Right. That's, that's a core advantage that new money has. You can literally go in as a positive guy, as someone who wants to be a partner because you don't have any burden right. of legacy with you. That, you know, that's an interesting, you know, like, yeah, so I see uh, David Nealman's out there trying to start Moxie or whatever the name of his new airline is. Breeze, um, yeah. I think Breeze. Breeze, thank you. Um, yeah, Andrew Levy's down in Houston trying, you know, he's getting some money together to start a uh, new airline. And, you know, that's but, yeah, got me scratching. You know, one, going back to your thing is that, you know, your, your, your previous statement is, you're right. Um, you know, if so many people pull out of the market now, you can see a serious shortage. You've seen it in other industries where you go, hey, look, everybody bailed out of real estate 10 years ago um, during the financial crisis or you know, you know, 12 years ago during the financial crisis. Then all of a sudden, you know, home builders, you know, are now in short supply. Um, you yes. can literally see where airplanes are now, you know, Boeing, Airbus are going down to minimal rate production. You know, you can see where in five years... You know, you know, people want new airplanes and there's no no capacity to to build them. So, you know, right. ultimately, if you're patient, you know, if you're patient, the returns can be unbelievably good. Yeah. And I, I think, look, this is on, on the lessor side, this is what a proven business model now is, is that you start after a correction, like something we're experiencing now, and you get out before the next one comes. Right. So that basically puts you on a five to 10 year sort of plan. I think that's that is if if you know if, if that suits a, an investor profile, that is the most profitable thing you can do is, is get out before the next one comes. And, and when you look at the what is coming from the manufacturer point of view, 
the amount of pain they're going to inflict on their supply base by the, the huge reductions in production, this time is different because they don't have the money to save all of their suppliers. Previously, any supplier that gets in trouble just gets sucked or pulled back in-house, mm-hmm. uh, and that protects the supply chain. Everyone has an inward focus at the moment, which is you protect yourself first. Yeah, no and doubt. That's, well, that's the big difference. So the ability to ramp back up mm-hmm. um, as the market recovers, that's going to be slow and painful as well. Well, it's, it, could take, it could take 18 months to two years just to qualify a new supplier. You think about, you know, Triumph is out there. You know, Triumph is uh, struggling a little bit. And I suspect that it'll, look, I'm not into their balance sheet. And I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, but I suspect that ultimately Triumph will start to sell itself off in in pieces. You've got Spirit out there, you know, trying to, you know, maybe Spirit can make a, you know, can make it in, you know, a Hail Mary play and and start to really consolidate and become the dominant player in the market. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, I don't think the, people that aren't deep into the industry really understand that, you know, this building airplane stuff is hard. It's, you know, it's, it it is, and it goes all the way to, you know, galleys and seats and the IFE, all Mm -hmm. all of the, the the contents of a plane. Yeah. It's a huge supply base for that. And all of that supply base is going to hurt. But, you know, going back, I I actually, I I apologize. I shifted gears on you for a second. Yeah. So you talk about, we've got Breeze, you've got Andrew Levy down there trying to start a new airline. Are we going to see some, uh, are we going to see new money coming in with, with, with with new deliveries? Yeah. Because they, these guys represent the demand side, you know, and the, and the lessor investor community represents the supply side. If there's, if there's one lesson that'll probably be taken away from this is that, in theory, airlines should probably want to deploy their their capital on operations. Maybe not all of it in planes now, um, which creates more leasing opportunity. But it, logically, you you have to expect there are going to be growing gaps left in the in the market. I thought Breeze had a good business model pre-COVID, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it'll only strengthen it um, in the in the post-COVID world. Uh, I mean, their game changer was deploying something like the A220, right? So right. super efficient plane for, for thinner, lower demand routes and connecting secondary cities that the majors didn't really care about. Mm-hmm. And you can't defend against that plan as a major with a, you know, an A319 or a 737-700 because you left those routes because you couldn't make money on them. Right. And I think they'll have far bigger fish to fry now uh, than, than trying to, to compete against a, a breeze. I also think Breeze is almost purpose-built, pre-COVID anyway, for one of the majors to buy them as soon as they prove their business case out. Yeah, I sort of like the AT20. Um, now, with, with with values dropping precipitously, yeah, you know, back at you know, the beginning of COVID, I was like, this is a real opportunity for the A220. It's a, you know, very efficient airplane. You can fly long distances. You put up to 150, you know, you, you think you'd put 150 people on it. You know, I live in North Carolina to go from Charlotte to you know, Austin, Texas, or Dallas, you know, or you know, every hour, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, you know, the A220, maybe the E2 start to see some new life, new interest, you know, once the, uh, once the dust all settles. I think so. And, and, you know, somewhat fortuitously, the, uh, one of the advantages the A220 um, enjoys is it has a relatively low production rate already. So it doesn't need that much demand for it to, to, be a, a from a production point of view an almost fully deployed aircraft. Yeah, would it, yeah, uh, yeah. Very good point there. And and the question is now, when it comes into production, can they make it as you know? Can they make it as you know cheap as you you know 
as you used, you know, hey, look, you're, there's a lot of competition now with with you know, midlife 737s, etc. So yeah, I guess well, if you look at the general, um, you know, there's an oversupply of, of um, E190s in the in the market. So at that point, you know, the operation uh, operating. Uh, competitiveness of the A220, at what point is that outweighed by the lower acquisition cost of the uh, E190? What about green time? You know, you, you know, you know we got you know, going down through the supply chain, you've got your USM surplus parts guys, you've got your some of your really successful engine leasing companies. Right. Um, I, I got to think green time engines will be at a premium. Um, if you've got Engines with some green time on them, you're going to be uh, you're going to be uh, uh, someone whose phone is ringing off the hook. Well, I'm not sure it'll be it'll be off the hook because of the sheer number of green time engines that that are out there. So if you're an airline that owns the planes, then you'll probably harvest your own green time engines to avoid doing shop visits. Um, next up on the list of harvesting is is disassembly. Uh, and reassembly where literally you're just taking modules of engines to, to create life in other engines or sending engines to the shop just for a surgical strike. Mm-hmm. Um, then you'll see a divergent strategy from, from lessors. If I was a lessor, I'd be pushing all of my airlines pretty hard to it's like, don't worry about what the lease agreement says. Let's relax that return condition. Here's another engine. It has 3,000 3, cycles on it. Um, that's rad. And when you look at that supply demand imbalance, you could do that what will feel like into perpetuity. Like if you can't if you can't get a plane out the door, then you know swap engines. Um, and right. you're not saving money, but you are obviously pushing um, cash flow, you know, fur- further out there. There's going to be a lot of it, and you know the the engine guys that are out there, the big guys, tend to be very good at what they do. Mm-hmm. I think what you'll see is a much bigger push towards comprehend, more comprehensive um, fleet solutions for, for airlines. So stop treating this like an MSN and let's start talking about all of your other types, 737-800s or all of your A320s. And we will guarantee that you know every engine has at least 2,000 cycles on it and we'll do it for this cost, either upfront per month. Um, what whatever, but the the deployment of um, a really fulsome engine fleet uh, solution, I, I think it's it's not new, but I think you'll find a lot more um, energy um, expended by the engine guys to make sure that their uh, inventory is deployed as best as it can be. Yeah, but keeping the shops open for the long haul. I mean, ultimately, long term, you know, shop visits are down. Once again, you're creating, you know. How do we, you know, once again, protecting the supply chain, um, you know, ultimately shops will, you're going to need to, need to keep that skill set. Do we need to keep, you know? This, it's the, uh, possibly the only, the only business model right now that's worse than being an operating lessor is, uh, is, is being an MRO who's, who's um, deeply committed to invested in, in engines. And the guy who's probably worst off is Rolls-Royce, right? So not only are you exclusively focused on the wide body market, but you built a, vert- um, a vertical integration model where you don't have anyone else really doing those shop visits. And this has been proven in the chart of business of, of yesteryear, particularly in the UK and Germany, where the tour operator wanted to own the travel operator, wanted to own the airline and wanted to own the, the hotels, because that way you swept every penny off the table and you weren't sharing it with anyone. Downside is when the bad news hits is that there's no partner committed to sharing the downside with you. You own all of it. 
And that's the position that Rolls is in today. It doesn't have a significant partner who's invested hundreds or billions of dollars in, in supporting their product. They wanted to do it all, which want- leaves them really, really um, challenged, I think. Fast forward to or, or jump across the, the Atlantic to someone like a Pratt & Whitney. Uh, I was doing something with them recently, and, and they had an interesting take on this, is that one of the way that you can bring engines into the shop is to do upgrades for people. You know, there's a there's a carrot for, for someone. And I'm I'm not sure commercially how big the carrot is, but to offer to upgrade engines uh, as a means of um, enticing people to bring them in, in the shop, uh, you know, that I, I think is an interesting strategy. Well, you know, the one thing that's interesting is, yeah, the industry's full of smart people and they, you know, they tend to get pretty crafty. Right. Um, yeah, everybody's like, hey, look, you know, yeah, it's not how we did it, you know, yesteryear. But it's a new day, you know, figure, you know, you know, the reason we have smart people in the company is to figure out how to bring some revenue in and let's look at everything. Let's put everything on the table and we'll look at it. Yeah. And if one it's of, one of the interesting things in there, Greg, is that in that list of smart people are now auditors. And as the industry has matured, so has the uh, auditor skill set. And a lot of decision-making is driven by your impairments, which are driven by mark-to-market concerns. And this is where the, where the real threat is for, for lessors. When you can break aircraft out into a small subset, uh, so for example, you might have had some A1-powered A320s, and you take an impairment on one, you say, but we've only got four of them, and, and that's what you impair against. If you have 100 737-800s and you impair one, the auditor is going to look at all of them in terms of around this vintage. So, you you know, what you'll often see people doing unless they decide to bite the bullet and take the impairment is they'll pick their oldest plane because they don't have very many of them. They're not going to pick their youngest planes because that's where they where they have the most of. And, and so much strategy will be driven by, by this. Uh, for example, there are lessors out there whose accounting policy was, just because it never made a difference previously, that you split the value of your capital A aircraft, one third airframe, one third each engine. So now if you want to sell an engine or do something with it, you're attacking one third of your book value. So, you know, you need to bring an engine, a little E engine back and make it a capital E engine on a capital A aircraft uh, to avoid impairment. My, My point being is that um, the industry is more sophisticated than it used to be, and you'll see a lot of what best economic outcome uh, will be driven by accounting decisions. Yeah, no, that's that's a good uh, that's a good point. Where do, where does the new money come from? So, look, I, I'm a firm believer that here's what I I think the scenario I think happens is treatment for COVID comes out, you know, vaccine treatment, whatever. Yeah, you know, everybody's talking by the end of the year. Yeah. Six months distribution to the populations, you know, and then six months after that, maybe businesses start to get people back to the office. And I think a lot of the, I, I think a lot of air travel is going to be just getting people back into the offices and the work. And then ultimately, you know, once that happens, people will start to feel comfortable getting on airplanes again. So it's probably, a, you know, we're probably talking a year from now to 18 months. And then you know, everybody's saying another year after that to get back to 2019. But 2019 was a bull market. Um, yeah. yeah it was. Where's the money? You know, where does the money come from to 
support that is it you know you know gold is goldman out there is it blackstone blackrock is it you know you know big hedge funds going hey look this is a good or are they saying once bit once bitten twice shy um, oh, I think if there's one thing the market's taught us, there's no such thing as once bitten, twice shy. Uh, you know, this is a this is a short memory industry for a lot of for a lot of people. Not to mention, there's a lot of younger blood in the industry that's never seen a downturn. You know, they don't. They've heard that it's cyclical. They just didn't understand. You know what that really looked like. Um, and I would say, if we use the once bitten, twice shy analogy, that, that all of the sharks will be will be circling. Um, Real briefly, I think this winter is what will drag 2021 down and make it more of the same, if you like, on a blended basis to, to mm -hmm. 2020. I don't think people are nearly as afraid of flying as, as it's often portrayed. I think people are just a lot more binary in the sense that you said, vaccine. Until there's a vaccine, um, you know, there's not a lot of interest from a lot of people to get out there, binary thing. Um, but I, I think the the... One thing that the aviation industry has in, in going in its favor, and it's not a, a big one, but it's most of our previous challenges and crises have been more directed at the industry. You know, when you when you look at, you know, from 9-11 from to SARS to the volcano in Iceland, you know, very aviation specific. This is across the entire economy. And when you are money, you know, you're one of these big funds, every industry's hit. So it's a case of looking at where recovery, the um, elasticity or the recovery potential of an industry. Yep. And I think for the aviation industry, the elasticity of it is proven. The recovery aspect is proven. Right. And that's, you know, that's the attractiveness of, of the industry to, to investors. It's like, this has got to be a good time. Might not be right now. It might be six months. It might be 12 months, but we should be ready to go. Let's not follow the industry, let's get in front of it so that we know what it looks like, what we're after. Yeah. And that and that's a little bit I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about our podcast days coming in. I'm thinking, you know, I was thinking, hey, look, you know, the best time to invest when everything when everybody's just totally deflated. So it's probably about right to bring to bring some money and start to think about, hey, look, we'll, you know, the, the blood's in the water, we'll we'll start to pick up assets or we'll start to think about it. But then I start to think about, hey, look, what what are other ways the industry can grow. And you think about AI, um, you know, can we start to put in, you know, AI systems that, you know, when you buy your ticket online, you take your picture. And when you show up at, you know, the gate or when you show up at the security line at the airport, you know, it recognizes your face or facial recognition, you know, just go on, you know, go right on through. Um, you know, same thing, you know, at the gate when you're jumping on the airplane, you know, there's, there's Andy, we know he's in C day, you know, 1A, you know, welcome aboard. I yeah. think that there's a lot of opportunities now to say, hey, look, maybe this is a good time to get the, early, the, the, the entire industry, not just the, the aircraft or the airlines, but you're talking the airports, you know, you know, investing at a higher level to operate at a more efficient level. Um, across the board. Could completely agree. And this would be, uh, to me, the, an, an excellent example of why you want your playbook ready to, ready to use when something like this happens. Because what better time to roll out new technology and another huge one is an air traffic control. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's so much inefficiency just, just in the US with, with air traffic control. But if that playbook had been developed, this would be a great time to roll out that technology. So while the skies are not full, mm -hmm. 
you know, what better time than when you're flying at a, at a severely reduced um, traffic flow? Yeah. You know, it would be a, it'd be the perfect time to, to do exactly what you say. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, I'm here in 2024. Does it take that long? Do we get back on our, uh, do you think it's, uh, think it's sooner? Think it's later? Do you think 2024 is about the right number? What do you, uh, yeah, what do you, uh, what's, what's your crystal ball say? Well, I think 20, the devil's always in the details. If you take that entire world industry, 2024 sounds very reasonable, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a very uneven um, application. Both We've seen it in support, but also in, in recovery. Um, will the, the Deltas, the United, the British Airways, the Singapores, the Cathays of the world, the Lufthansa's, will they be flying at the same international long-haul capacity in 2024? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that traffic will, will take longer, partly because of how they're slashing their fleets. You know, so, you know, will they slash just to try and rush back in there? When you talk about US traffic, for example, or take segments of the LCC, um, ultra LCC, domestic traveling traffic generally, sure, I bet that's back by 2024. Wouldn't surprise me if that's back by 2023. It's when you blend in long haul and then are you talking to, you know, just the shorter international routes or, you, or you're really going mm-hmm. big with these. So I think if you if you break all of the traffic down into, into buckets, some buckets will be back before and some will take a heck of a lot longer to, to get back there. And part of that will have been uh, how the airlines reacted to the crisis that they're faced with today. Right. And and ultimately, in the international side of the house, you've got a lot of you know, these, you know, the high cost airlines and they're now ultimately going, all right, we can't, you know, our model is not sustainable. Yeah. And, um, and, a, and a big one that, that's out there, Craig, of course, is um, does one of the, the U.S. majors go chapter 11? Yeah, or two. Yeah. And if two go, it wouldn't surprise me if three go, and then you've got a whole new playing field again. Yeah, that's probably for another day. I've heard some people say if one goes, they all go. Um, you know, it's hard to compete. You know, if, if one guy gets to reset all of his costs, it's hard to compete against that. We've seen it before. Yeah. And and I think just to conclude on, on, on that, my rule of thumb with that is if one goes, I think two goes, but whether number three goes, all comes down to their outlook. Because if their outlook is we actually think that the recovery will be will be more weighted in the 2022 slash 2023 timeframe, they can hold on. If they think it's 2024 and beyond and they look at that like, wow, the competitive landscape has just slanted so much against us, mm-hmm. we're gonna have to go too. Makes my head hurt. <laughs> Will you come back on again once we start to uh, once we start to, to to get through the other side? Oh, I'd I'd love to be able to talk positively about stuff. So it would be a pleasure, Craig, to come back on. Hey, thanks, thanks, Andy, for coming on board. And uh, Andy Mansell, partner in Split Rock Aviation. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on today, talking about the industry. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, Craig. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.